Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. Just so you know, this week's episode is a long one, suitable for a long drive or a plane ride. That way I'll feel less guilty about skipping next week. A couple days ago, I discovered up on a shelf in a book mailer box a gift-wrapped Christmas present which I forgot to send to tonight's guest two years ago. I didn't have to unwrap it or even check my spreadsheet of presents past. I recognized it by its weight alone. That book was a copy of Neil Stevens' Anathem. For those of you who haven't invested a couple months of your life reading this hog of a book, it's basically an alternate history of Western scientific and philosophical debates in a world where science and religion never split, one where science and non-consumer technology are confined to monasteries. Their split was between the life of the mind and spirit and the life of the gut and gonads. Mathematics and music feature pretty heavily in the plot, and there's a CD taped to the back cover of the choral music that these scientific monks and nuns sing as their problem-solving. Naively, I thought this might be a pretty good present for tonight's guest, who's been telling me that music is math for like 20 years now, since we were rolling dice across a Battletech map in college didn't occur to me that mailing a heavy present to a postman might be considered a dick move. So maybe I'll carry it myself next time, when I finally remember to give it to him. We did not talk about changes in the postal environment. Our conversation rambled instead across music, expertise, cooperation, and not evolutionary game theory, but game design from a player's perspective which probably has something to do with evolutionary game theory, and which I'll have a few more words to say about after the hour-long interview. We've been gaming all weekend, and thinking back to last week where I I mentioned the champion criterion for performance of something being about 10,000 hours of practice. My first question... Tom is, which do you think you've spent more time doing? Singing or playing games? I definitely know it's one, two of those activities in my existence thus far. Of everything else, maybe sleep might be in there at two. But I would say music has taken up a little more of my time than gaming, but it's pretty, it's not an automatic one to, you know, music gaming. I have to think about it, so it's pretty close. Would you say you have hit 10,000 hours of practice? <sighs> Is, does performance in, count for practice or just literally practicing it? No, I, th- I think anything where you're actually doing it counts as practice. <sighs> okay, well. Uh, I don't know if I've quite hit 10,000. I would put it between seven and 8,000 hours, maybe. Okay, could you do that math out loud, just out of curiosity? Yeah, well, 
I worked at a church for 12 years as sort of a ringer type, like a hired gun, I guess. So Have voice will travel. Right. So that was about four hours a week of singing, just that. So I figured I did that about 50 weeks out of the year for 12 years. So that's about however much that is. Four times 50 is 200 times 12 is 2400 and then I did that before I did that I worked at Shakertown for about four years but that wasn't nearly as much time because I wasn't a full that wasn't the only I wasn't the only person that did what I did at Shakertown but that was also while I was in college studying voice and I sang a lot in college too much really but in college, I, I sang probably just practice with the different groups about five hours a week. And then I had my voice lessons and the practice doing that was at least that much more. So that's 10 hours a week. And college is whatever, 1632 times 10 is 320 in college for four years-ish, even though I didn't quite finish all that stuff. Um, 320 times 4 is 128. Can I hear that? Is that what you're asking yeah. me? Probably. Probably. If I can hear it over here. Yeah, that's okay. So that's 1280. And then I've been... I mean, is singing, is practice, I guess it counts from when you're a little kid? I assume so. I don't, I'm not a voice person, so right. I'm guessing, though, that, that coordination of those muscles is the same no matter what you're doing with them. Is that not true? Well, it depends. I mean, a lot of this, ideally, that's true. Ideally, that you... You use the same technique to sing whatever it is you're singing. But I didn't have any training at singing until I got to college. So I have all these nice bad habits. And so did, do you think that subtracts? Do you actually have to, un, is it algebraic? Do you have to unlearn <laughs> bad habits? And do the, does it take hours of practice to unlearn bad habits and do those hours then not count? Well, I've heard... I've heard people that have had training before they've got to college and afterwards, and in some ways what you're learning, you're not necessarily ready to learn until you get to college, if that like, makes any sense. I, it does, but I, I need an example of what you mean. Uh, well, from what I've been told, which from people who know far more than me, a tenor's voice doesn't really mature until like mid-30s to 40. And you can learn all the techniques to to utilize that prior to then, but as far as getting certain tech, certain sounds out, you're just not going to sound mature until you reach that age. Okay. Um, That's a really interesting question because I know that there are brain pathways, 
Like your brain is not completely fat. Mm -hmm. the, the fat that wraps your nerves and insulates them is not done until you're at least 25 mm -hmm. in the frontal cortex, maybe 30. And I have to wonder about the acoustics, just the <laughs> physics of changing the material composition of your head a little bit. Does that, I don't know if that would change the sound or not. Well, if it, the resonance, as far as I understand it, comes from your nasal, like your sinus passages. And so, if you, you know, if you're ill or something, you're congested, everything sounds different to you for sure, as if you're singing. And I would think that it would have to produce a different sound too. And even just, I mean, ideally, I don't know that it's physiologically, physiologically true, but like some, if you like lose a bunch of weight or gain a bunch of weight, how you sing will, and how you sound will definitely change. You don't sound the same. I don't mean that you can listen to somebody and say, hey, they sound thin. I don't mean that. It's just if you heard them when they were thin, then they gained 50 pounds or something, they won't sound the same. Is, it, is that related to why all of the operatic tenors are fat? <laughs> right. No. No. And that's not really true. I mean, oh, okay. just the, a lot of the famous ones are overweight. But I would... For the most part, most of them, even if they're overweight, they're going to have a very strong diaphragm because that's where this—that's the reason you can belt a high C, is that you have a ton of support under it, at least belt it and sound good to get famous. There's, there's people who can sing, you know, a tenor who can sing a, a high C, that yeah, it comes out, but it doesn't sound the same. I mean, no one sounds exactly the same, but it doesn't sound good, really. It doesn't have that quality to it. At a high volume, particularly. A high volume and just it just sounds effortless. That's part of it. It just sounds you know it's just another note and it's it's glorious because it's a it just it has a certain quality to it that most of us just cannot attain. You were kind of talking about that this morning mm -hmm. uh, when we were on our way driving down to the con mm -hmm. about. Uh, when you were talking about some of the, the Bach mm -hmm. group that you were working with, how having to sing with other people really sort of changed uh, the dynamic of how to sing. Right? Like you don't. You have to make concessions in certain areas if you want to get a good group, as a, a, group, a good group sound. You don't. Gen, for most choirs, you don't necessarily want 24 former vocal majors because they're used to doing probably solo work, probably um, not used to blending. Right, and that was the word you used this morning. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like it means something different than I think it means. Well, the, the basic way that you blend is that you want to have either minimal or no vibrato in your sound because vibrato is just a wavering below and above hopefully an equal measure between a, a tone so it's frequency above and below a little bit right instead and of modulate ah that's no vibrato and a, that's kind of boring but vibrato would be ah 
I don't have a lot of vibrato just generally, but some people have lots of vibrato. And that's very different from the sort of smoky... Right? I always thought that was vibrato. No, vibrato is what typically you'll hear an operatic soprano using. Okay. Where, and that's part of the reason why I kind of get turned off by a lot of opera, because if you use too much vibrato, you don't recognize the pitch anymore because the way the difference is so great, particularly if it's a melismatic passage, which is basically a bunch of notes on one syllable, where it's going but all in one, you don't do the da's, you just ha 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 all of it. If you're doing that while vibratoing, it's just <laughs> it's a mess. Exactly, it's a mess. You cannot recognize the line, and for some reason, there are incredibly famous people who make their living singing that that's just sort of, you know, that's just the way they sing and it's beautiful, but I cannot stand it myself. But that's just me. I mean, that's personal taste, I suppose. So, back to this sort of, this blending issue, because I, I think a lot about that in terms of just social dynamics, mm -hmm. right? Like, I have... I'm impatient about certain aspects of social dynamics where it's like, okay, how do we decide where we're going to dinner? Right. And it's a big group of people and they're all trying really hard to be very nice to one another. It's really hard to do it with two people sometimes. Sometimes. And they're trying to be nice and trying not to step on the other person's foot and nothing gets done. Oh, sure. And, and there would be cases like that where I would just get frustrated and say, well, I'm going over here. I would be happy to have company, but I'm going over here just right. because I was tired of standing around and waiting. Not because I wanted to be the leader or the boss. You I were just, hungry. I was hungry. <laughs> and so I wonder, I wonder how, how much of the difficulty of getting particular sounds is sort of the physics of it, of just how difficult is it to match sounds, and how much of it is just human social dynamics being negotiated. Mm-hmm. Well... I would think it depends somewhat on the egos of the people in the choir because many of them, many of the folks that I've sung with over the years, as it were, are used to singing in choirs and they don't really think of themselves as great singers, which you don't necessarily need to be. I mean, it's nice to have that kind of knack on call, but most, most choir uh, choral music doesn't place the same sort of demand on a singer that a solo piece would. That's not always true. I mean, that's just sort of a, a generalization. There's, there are some very difficult, like, 16-measure passages in choral works. Then you really have to work on those particularly. But just uh, psychologically, you're not, you're not exposed. If you're singing by yourself... It's a whole other thing than singing with a group of people because you can lean on them. And you, yeah, you mentioned that the the other night you had a solo, right? And were not happy with how it turned out the first time. The second time was, but and but you, I've never heard you say anything about that during during points where you were singing with other people. Like right. I sucked, I messed everything up for everybody else. Right, well, that's true. I mean, I'm not saying that I've never made a mistake in a choral uh, 
concert. I certainly have. There's no doubt of that. But it didn't like wreck the whole thing, which that's partly just, because that other people can can compensate. Well, if you heard it, you would probably hear a mistake because I tend to have. I wouldn't say loud, but it has a lot of ring. My voice has a lot of ring to it, so it kind of cuts through texture wise. Texture wise. So if I make a mistake, it's usually audible, but it doesn't like destroy the piece. And it's not the same, it just doesn't have the same effect on me, I guess, psychologically, that man, I really blew that line that I've worked on. But all these other people sang it correctly, so it's not as big a deal. If I'm singing all by myself on a solo and I mess up some line, and it's not that I sing the wrong note, it's just that I didn't interpret it the way that I think I should have or something like that, it bothers me. And that's, so how many choral singers sort of have that? Or how or do most choral singers just sort of blow it off and go, yeah, if I get it. Uh, that's kind of hard to say. I would say most people just don't worry about it too much, would be my guess. And that was uh, in teaching, right? You're basically performing... It's almost, the way I do it is almost like stand-up. Uh, you're sort of performing for an audience, and there's, there's lots of points in time that I had to sort of learn to just, I made a mistake. Of course, I'm a scientist, and scientists are supposed to be all about mistakes anyway, right? right. So I get some kind of, uh, many, many, many scientists are about hiding their mistakes, Mm -hmm. Or, I don't mean hiding, I mean uh, over-preparing so that they don't make mistakes and over-explaining so that no one will interpret and ask the wrong question, mm -hmm. right? They, they almost, it's almost a competitive sport to preempt, to preemptively answer a question mm -hmm. so, that you, so that you don't have to answer that question. Right. Scientists do that. Mm -hmm. I tend not to. I tend to just screw things up a lot, and and then that becomes part of the routine almost in a sense. Mm -hmm. Not having lost, watched a lot of performances in the sense where I'm like watching the singers to see if they're looking over at one another. Well, I think I mean, maybe you're that, too busy. Well, that would be a sort of an amateurish mistake. I mean, rule number one is if someone screws up, you don't like. Do that. Oh yeah! You don't glance at them, and especially not if you do it. You I mean you just keep going, whatever. Like in the concert on uh, Friday that we did, where it was very, uh, very impressive in a way. The bass solo, while it was going on, it had been going on for a short time, and the lights just turned off. And spontaneously. Spontaneously. I mean, someone hit some wrong button somewhere, and the, all the lights in the church just went dim. You couldn't see. But the orchestra kept playing. The bass soloist just kept right on going. And then like five seconds later, someone turned the lights back on and didn't break rhythm, didn't break anything. That's, that's how performance is supposed to work. You keep going. And in my solo, actually on that same night, it didn't, it didn't affect me, I think, in my sort of dissatisfaction with what I did, but there was a repeat in the music that basically you play approximately 32 bars and then you go back and repeat that section again 
Mm -hmm. And then after you've repeated it again, it continues on. But the cellist didn't take the repeat the first time. He just kept going. Oh. And eventually, once I did, once I did, went back to the repeat, the conductor kind of got his attention and said, we're doing the repeat now. Not he didn't say that, but he conducted it, you know. And so about, you know, 24 bars or so, the cellist was playing something completely wrong, pretty much. But I was singing, and I knew something was off, but you just keep going. Particularly as a soloist, you just depend on the instrumentalist will catch up with wherever you are. Even if you're wrong, you don't want to stop. Which is exactly what happens with real amateur students who are learning, right? Is that they, is that they stop and go, ah! Yeah, that's exactly right. And you, if you have a, a background in performance, they kind of, not beat it out of you, but tell you, you know, don't ever do that. Just go on as if nothing wrong happened. And no one, well, I told you what that one lady sent me that nice message about it, but no one in the audience, I don't think, even realized that the cellist messed up or that something or something was wrong. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, I wasn't initially sure that that was what was wrong, and I was up there singing it. You had to go back and look at the game films? <laughs> well, someone, I thought that was what it was, and someone else confirmed it, so that was, that was good enough for me. So do you guys do that, like professional athletes? Do you go back and do game film kind of analyses of recordings, or um, how does that work? I don't know. I do that some with stuff that I've done, but um, usually with this group, it's usually broadcast at some point, and so we'll all get together to listen to it at like a sort of a party sort of atmosphere. But every once we start singing, you know, all the conversation stops, and people are just listening intently for how good or bad it was. Are they taking notes? No, no. No one is actually taking notes. Okay. Although you could. You could say, you know, things that I hear, I tend to mention to to the director, you know, of, and I'm sure he hears the same stuff I do. He, he's, a, he's a good director. But just to sort of reinforce what I think we could do better. I know scientists do that, take notes. Mm -hmm. Like even, dur you know, during other people's talks, people will actually say things like, when we practice our our scientific presentations, job talks, posters, those sorts of things. Corbin and I used to do this. You'll actually run through it with an audience mm. who is who is going to sit there and deliberately be really mean to you, right? For your own good, right? In a sense, I got gotcha. you. Um, which I always found really odd. Mm -hmm. That did it work at all, or I totally works. In, in a couple of different ways. One is that it's is that a huge number of scientists actually have real performance anxieties about talking. I wouldn't want to talk in front of people. And that's that I don't understand that <laughs> in the sense that you you sing in front of people. But how is that not talking? Well, I guess because I've had a lot of training on how to sing, but I haven't had that same training on how to pub, do public speaking. Okay. Yes. Okay. And, and and that's sort of what I'm kind of getting at is that uh And I and I also think I'm a decent singer. I don't think I'm a very good public speaker, so it might just be, you know, psychological too. Maybe. But and that's that's the thing, is that you get explicit training in the song part. And this is like 
what happens with teaching for a professional scientist who's trained to do research is that they get no training. They get yeah. no formal training on that. They're just sort of thrown out there. Sure. It's left everybody they just assume, oh, you're smart, you'll be fine. Right. And, and that's not the case. That is not the case. People yeah. who are good at it have practiced. This is something that I have trouble getting across to my students sometimes, is that they also, you know, sort of swallowed that myth mm-hmm. and believe that they should just be good at it naturally. Right. Do singers have that same issue? Right. Are there people who are who are very, very early in their careers who, you know, just quit because they think they're not any good and it's it's an issue of well you haven't you haven't practiced. Right. Um I don't I can't cite any examples of someone who, you know, wasn't any good and quit. Um I do know of singing is a strange thing because you can only go so far with kind of what what you the hand you were dealt. Mm-hmm. You can only get so you can get much better than you were when you started, like you could with any sort of skill that you practice a great deal. But you know, some people, no matter how hard they try and how much they train, are never going to be able to dunk a basketball. So, and that's exactly the metaphor I was thinking about: was professional athletes who just have they can get to this level and then they can't make they can't go pro ever, even though they've worked as hard as you know, some pro athlete has. And so they really are sort of athletes of the voice as right, well. Right, a little bit. I mean, I. it's definitely some people have it and some people don't, I guess. I mean, I, I'm i a relatively good singer, but I'm, I don't think I'm a very good performer, mm-hmm. if you can kind of understand the difference. Like, I, I think I could have like done some studio work type thing because I'm a pretty good sight reader. I can just look at something and sing it pretty easily. But, you know, on a stage or something, that's not me. That's not really... You don't draw that energy from being a performer. No. Because no. I definitely do. Okay. I When I was in high school, I acted mm. and loved it, but never thought I could make a living at it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And And definitely for me, teaching in front of a, a classroom like that. has that performance aspect to it. That's one of the things that I enjoy about it. And one of the things that I didn't like about being a researcher was that I didn't get to do that often enough. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you, so if you're famous, you get people are you're in demand and you give talks all the time. Right. There's always someone who wants to listen to you. But uh, if you're obscure, right, those chances don't come as often. And so that was always one of the aspects of it that I didn't enjoy as much. And why I got started doing, probably one of the reasons I got started doing science radio in Houston was just because I liked that that aspect of working on a sort of performance angle Mm -hmm. that uh, I knew people would listen to on the drive home or whatever, as opposed to writing scientific journal articles that would be read by four or five people in the world. Right. I think a lot of people who enjoy choirs, you know, they, obviously they like singing, but I'm talking about a, 
not just like a sort of a volunteer choir, but one that's a little bit like the Bach choir has an auditioning process that you have to go through, and it's not super strict. If it's too strict, you end up with no one in your choir. But it's it's not just a strictly volunteer choir. So um, I think a lot of people that are in that don't necessarily enjoy the idea of like solo performing with all that sort of with uh, the weight of that on you it, but they can bear it more easily if it's in a in the context of being in a group like there's some people I think that would just be be just as happy as we just if we didn't ever perform if we just rehearsed and learned this neat music and just who cares about performing it they just want to do the music so what I, and again, you know, my ignorance in music history and all those sorts of things. Is all of the Bach choral music that you're doing religious music? I think pretty much all of it that we do is religious. Is that I because you're singing in churches? No. I mean, I, I may not be, I'm definitely not a Bach scholar, but most of this, as far as I know, almost all the stuff that <clears throat> at least of his music that we have is uh, sacred because he worked in churches. <laughs> okay, that was his vocation. He was a, an incredibly famous organist of his day, and he had some very prestigious posts. And but they were all within that world. They were all within that world. Yeah. He didn't play for the royals in a sense so much. <sighs> I honestly couldn't say for sure, but. Um, I mean, people, one of his little, you know, he was a great improvisationalist, and there, you know, that still exists today of people, some organists who are very highly skilled, other musicians could do it, but he has happened to be an organist, they would call out some famous tune of the day, and he would spontaneously improvise, you know, a four-minute piece or more on this theme of the the melody and it wouldn't just be you know ooh a few chords under it like some people would do it would be this elaborate piece that he's just spontaneously writing basically so how does a person do that <laughs> i'm very interested in the sort of the roots of creativity and how how that how that process happens i mean the only thing that i can liken it to is improv is Baroque improvisation that I can do some and it's not anything near the complexity level of a full organ work because you're talking about multiple lines of of notes that all have to make the chords he wants and incorporate this melody so it's a well he's whole, got ten fingers he's got ten fingers that's true no but, he got two vocal chords right but just the level of it is much higher than doing a few they would be called ornaments Mm -hmm. And it's not really any different than a pop song where someone adds a little flair in the song that no one ever wrote on a page, but that's just, it sings in that style that way. And it's a similar thing in Baroque music, particularly the, the concession or the practices, once you've sung them, the melody as written, if you're going to do it again, or if it's repeated later in the piece, you em you embellish it in certain ways. 
and there are lots of little um, figures that you add to it. Like if it, if oh, so they're it, like standardized little modules almost. Yeah, and and once you once you hear examples of them, um, and it's not just Baroque music, but I'm just using that as, as an example. Um, like if they're like at the end of a line, that's a that's a single step, like an A to a G. A lot of times that A will have a trill put on it. Like how how does that sound? Like instead of going uh, ah, ah, you go ah, ah. okay, would, and that's a baroque thing. But in a country song, it wouldn't be necessarily anything different. Um, like uh, physiologically, it would be a similar technique, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be the same pattern. It wouldn't be ah, ah, ah. I mean that's that's not country. It'd be Ah, whatever. Okay, I but got it's you. the same. It's really the same muscle group that you're using. But, but there, but it's like there are little chunks that you then, you know, sort of break apart mm -hmm. and rearrange. Right. And there's sort of uh, um, rules within each genre about sets of chunks that you can use or yeah well obviously in something like that's more freeform i guess like country or rock i wouldn't call them rules they're just more standards so then so then that's like a statistical thing where uh just because you're sort of going off what you've heard yeah well so there's like a boundary condition where you don't you don't go beyond that because that would stop being country or well once, I mean, a lot of country, like you, like, let's say, some things I like to do for fun, just goofing off, is take a non-country song and countrify it. Like, like Weird Al does with polka. Exactly. It's the same thing. I mean, it totally changes the characteristics of the song, but it's still recognizable. But it's the same thing. I mean, you can do, you can also do the inverse. Take, like, a Chuck Berry song and turn it into chant. Oh, really? Well... Somewhat, and that's all, and you sing, and, but all you do is you take out the embellishments and you sing the raw melody and you don't sing it and you change the inflections and you sing it in a pure way. Okay. And that's really all you have to do to make it chanty. Okay, yeah. I see what, I'm, I see what you mean in the sense that people have thought about this a lot in mm -hmm. the context of whale song and bird song and those sorts of things where individual birds are not identical mm -hmm. but very often it's because their songs are sort of small and short and you can identify who all their influences were because you know who their parents were and you know who the other birds are around at the time uh, it, it's fairly easy to see how that process of embellishment mm. happens. And people have done this same kind of work in language mm -hmm. on the shifting of accents. Right. Right, like the southern accent is basically an Elizabethan accent from old, from yeah. middle, you know, Shakespearean England, mm -hmm. but transplanted to the mountains and then shifted a little bit, mm -hmm. whereas yeah. English, most British English then went in a different direction. Yeah, I took a class called uh, 
vocal production for the stage, which all it is is just how to enunciate, really, which I found it actually relatively useful in singing because it made me break down more sort of the foibles I fall into with having the accent I do and trying to sing without it. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by... So you mentioned this morning that there was a process that people use in singing in an accentless way or singing or trying to change the accent to have like a, a German note or a, an Italian note. Yeah, yeah. Of the same note. And, mm -hmm. and can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm, well, I didn't, I didn't completely understand it this morning. Right. Well, it, it's kind of funny because in English, there's so many things like an ah vowel is an ah vowel is an ah vowel for the most part. But if you're saying cat, it's not the same as if you're saying um, lawn, even though they're kind of ah. But cat is a more forward ah sound. In the front of your mouth. In the front of your mouth. And that is more of a German type of ah, at least from, from the training I've had. Some German people may not agree. Okay. But uh, we do have a listener or two in Germany. Okay. If, they, if we get it wrong, they'll tell us. Right. But... Um, but from what I understand, the Italian ah uh, is not as forward. And that's a very minute kind of thing. And I don't think someone from one of those countries, if they heard it wrong, would really just, like, it would take them out of it. And, wow, that was a really improper ah uh, sound. Because I can't imagine doing that at, on the other side of it. A, you know, someone from Germany singing English, and I'm just totally thrown off by some vowel that they make. But people do that all the time in spoken English. Yes, they do. We use that. I mean, people are incredibly sensitive and, and because you're speaking. I think mm -hmm. one of the things that happens in song is that a lot of those changes are kind of slowed down. They are. Yeah, that's, I mean, all singing is is speech with very long vowel sounds. That's all it is. I mean, your speech has pitch to it. Sure, sure. And that's what they, when they talk about Chinese being a tonal language, then mm -hmm. those people yeah, everyone, almost get trained in music just by yeah, speaking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a vast, a much, much higher percentage of Chinese musicians have perfect pitch than do people in, from other areas. The consensus in the neuroscience community says that's because of the tonal language. It's mm -hmm. not genetic. It's right. the fact that they, they speak what, a tonal I would, language. I would, that's what I would think. I mean, many of the, like the language, the the words that they use that have like a lilt to them that go, that sound like kind of a question, mm -hmm. but that's just part of the way the word is spoken. They all say it on the same pitch even. It's not just within my range, this is how I speak. Everyone goes, uh? Oh, And really? everyone goes, uh? So on that pitch. It's not like it varies from... And you, so you've noticed that just in sort of listening to... No, 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 you, I, it's a radio lab. Oh, radio lab, yes. <laughs> My heroes. Right. So, I, I, I interrupted you on sort of like more your personal process for trying to get rid of, of the uh, y'all. Right, yep. That ain't easy to do now, I tell you. I, I, I spent up. years on it. Yeah, well, I obviously I haven't really, but... Um, most of it is just having someone in the room with you saying that was a bad one clean that up because you can usually i can usually tell and i think most people probably could 
even if someone is a very good singer, as far as singing like classical sort of music, whether someone has had training or they haven't, you just can't get around having someone in the room basically criticizing you for an hour a day, not an hour a day, but like an hour or two a week mm -hmm. for several weeks out of the year. There's just there's a process that you go through that you just get better at it because someone's always mostly just, they're just telling you things that you don't notice. I mean, I, for the most part, know what I sound like because I've done it a long time. But, like when I first got to college, I wasn't aware of it, but of was a very poor vowel for me because I was still saying it like it was from Kentucky, saying of. Mm -hmm. and, that, and something like that really does jump out. If you're seeing everything in a certain way, you know, you're singing everything with quote-unquote proper vowel placement, and then you throw an of in, that's not good. Oh, yeah. That really breaks whatever line you're trying to form musically. It just takes the listener right out of it. Like a fart in church. Like a fart in church, exactly. And I just, it just wasn't registering in my ear that I was doing that. And having a vocal teacher there to say, you know, clean that up, yeah, I worked on it for a while and fixed it. Mm -hmm. So, and I want to I want to tie this back into to our our mutual gaming obsession, <laughs> okay. to some extent. Sure. Um, and I've heard because uh, the games that we like at least often involve dice. I've heard that a lot of those those baroque musicians or guys around that time at least used mathematical formula and dice in composition. Is that true? I have not heard that. Okay, that was probably not true. But that could, I mean, just because I haven't heard it doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, I'm not a super expert. I'm, you know, my knowledge of music history isn't the greatest, to be honest. You know, maybe someone who has their doctorate could tell you whether it was true or not just offhand. Okay. It's, that's another thing is a lot of music education is learning how to talk about music without just saying, listen to this. Mm -hmm. And I struggled with that some. I was talking to you earlier in music history. You would have things where you would, they would play a piece and you would have to say who wrote it, who composed it, or at least what, what style it was in, like this, this is Mozart, this is Bach, this is Beethoven, whatever it might be. And I did did fine on, you know, I hear this piece, that's Mozart, I hear this piece, that's Beethoven. What I couldn't do is say why I thought that. And, and so this is a, a, a neuroscience-y kind of thing. Humans are incredibly good at statistical pattern finding, mm -hmm. but it's unconscious. Right, yeah. So people have done this. This is, I mean, there's some beautiful work that went on in Rochester, mm -hmm. partly. And what they would do is take together, is take syllables. Okay. Right? Just recorded loop syllables, and they would string them together in a, a constant stream, no spacing between them, so you could use them as word boundaries. More like ba pi do sa di wa Oh, not the same one. Not the same one. Okay. And so the only <coughs> way that you could find word boundaries was in the transition probabilities between two syllables. So the only way you could find a word was to say that uh, Bapi 
often, often, often occur together. So that must be the same word. But these other two never occur together or rarely occur together. So they must be in different words that don't necessarily bump one another. Hmm. And people could be doing something else. They would be pl playing computer games uh -huh. while this speech stream was playing. <laughs> they weren't even paying attention to it. Yeah. Uh, and after not as long as you might expect, and not just little kids who are soaking up speech, but adults could do it too. Mm -hmm. If they were listening to this for quite a while, they could at least tell you that's a word and that one is not a word. That is a, that is a pair of syllables that don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. They don't go together. Mm -hmm. They're nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like for us, um, I, would, I would have to think of one for a second, but there are things in English that don't go together. Mm -hmm. um, like uh, V, you don't see a lot of V's followed by P's. No. Right? No. Ivpa. Right. That's not a word. That, that's not a word in English anyway. Right. The, Maybe the, transition, the transition probabilities are different in each individual language. Yeah. Right? And that's... That's another difficulty in singing is you have to figure out, especially in German, Italian's not too bad, is how do I cram seven consonants onto an eighth note and enunciate them all? It's very hard for a country boy to do that. I, I, I can only imagine. Schwarzen, I mean, say that quickly, you know, but make music out of it somehow. Schwarzen. I mean, that's a frickin' word. You know what it means? No. <laughs> That was another thing you were talking about this morning, is that you sing these words in these languages, but uh, you you don't know what they mean. No, I mean, I you, I couldn't like sit down and tell you, this word means this, this word means this. We do usually write in a translation that is typically pretty good, but it's not. it's more of a meaning translation than a, this word means heaven, this word means God. But, like there's a song we did, Varum, and Varum means why. And we say that a whole bunch, and then it talks about, you know, why is life given to a tormented soul, etc., etc. But as far as being able to tell you this word, this whole song, and exactly what each word means, no, I don't do that. I can't do that. And, and don't want to, even. I mean, I mean, the music you're going for, you, you want more or less the emotional tone more you than do, anything else, right? Right. You, I mean, ideally, if everyone was, you know professional vocalist that was in the choir, they might be able to do that. And there are people in the choir who speak German and the t different Italian, French, etc., what, whatever they, it might be. But most of those people have either gotten more education than me or just like learning languages. But uh, as far as in the choir, it's not a complete necessity. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were singing you know, an opera in a foreign language, you'd want to know what every word meant. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to convey that to the audience. Okay. So, my dad is a country boy who is good at doing math in his head, mm -hmm. right? Just the, the arithmetic you were doing when you were figuring out the hours, right? Right. Uh, that's the kind of thing that a lot of people would need a pencil and paper to do. Yeah. Uh, and you're also the kind of guy who is constantly sort of figuring the odds of things in the games that we're playing Whereas I, 
just sort of intuitively roll the dice and hope for the best. I sure. mean, I know the basic probabilities. I sure. know that a, I know that a twelve is pretty rare. All right, on two d six. On two d six, that you know, yes, I know that's a one in thirty six chance. Sure. But I'm not tracking how many dice rolls I've made this evening, and then. Uh, complaining. Being, and then complaining that 12 hasn't come up as often as it should have, given how many times I've rolled the dice this evening. Right, right, yeah. And I, I've always wondered sort of whether, you're, whether you think of yourself as, the, as those two math things being related to one another at all, or are they completely independent of each other? I mean, because you're counting, as you're singing, you're counting yeah, all the time in your head. Yeah, but you're not doing any sort of complex calculations. I mean, if you can count to four, you can pretty much count off any music. Particularly, like, that's one of the things that I think helped me when I got to college was that I'd taken piano lessons a while, and I took piano lessons in, in college a bit. And the rhythms that you typically sing are not as complicated as instrumental rhythms for whatever reason, I don't know why. So a lot of people, in my experience, who just were singers, when they get to college, they have trouble, part of the training you do is doing multiple rhythms at once, and they have never done that, ever, you know, thought about rhythms simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So. But instrumentalists have. Instrumentalists have, generally. It, even if you're just playing a clarinet and you're just doing one rhythm at a time, their rhythms, instrumental rhythms, tend to be a little more complicated. I'm not, I don't know why that is, but it just is. Well, what I was thinking is more just the, the habit of keeping account mm -hmm. all the time. Is that something that just sort of bleeds over into your gaming? Or... <laughs> Is it just a... I don't think they're particularly related with me, at least, because, like I said, it's not a really complicated counting. I mean, the highest you'd ever have to count is maybe to 12. If you're subdividing 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that would be a four-beat measure divided into triplets, which you can all... But you would get... You could easily subdivide that more and just count half a measure at a time. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10. Okay. As I'm, I'm always I'm always struck by the way that friends of mine who I game with are just mathematically faster, particularly faster and more accurate. Than I am. I'm yeah. a good estimator. Yeah, I remember yesterday when we were playing that D6 game, you were having trouble adding up four D6. Not trouble, but you know, I would add it up, and then you know, three or four seconds later, you'd say what the result was. Which you know, that's fine. I'm not like, oh, you're really stupid because you can't add. I don't mean that. It's just like you said, it's striking the difference. It is, and and I mean, we could push that, right? I mean, we could make the dice pool big enough. Oh, sure. That it would overwhelm. Anyone. Anybody. Sure. You know, Rain just, Man. Just aside. go play champions. Yeah, go play champions and roll every D6 in the house. Yeah. And it would overwhelm anybody except, like, Rain Man. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, I, I've always just wondered whether there's a connection 
I mean, obviously, I guess people play what they're good at mm -hmm. and what they like. And mm -hmm. so the the fact that there are so many gamers who are also just good at that kind of thing. But maybe it's also just practice. Because yeah. when, you're, when you play a lot... You get you, a lot of experience figuring out whether it's better to roll... 5d6 needing a 5 or 3d6 needing a 4 which is better which is more likely that I'll get two successes if I need four or greater that right. kind of thing right and so I, I think of gamers in this uh, in the modern world as the way that uh, people like Bach and those guys Blaise Pascal invented a lot of the probability mathematics the whole reason he invented it was for winning money really at he because there were royals who gambled and they wanted to win more, mm -hmm. and they figured out that, oh, wait, there are rules uh, on top of the rules about what is cheating. Mm -hmm. There are also rules about how often things happen in a 52-card deck. Right. Distribution. Yeah, there are distributions that we haven't noticed until now, mm -hmm. and that those things, if you took that stuff into account, you would be a better gambler. Right. Well, there was some, someone put a link up, it may have been you, but I don't think it was, about some problem that these scientists had been trying to solve about some sort of disease thing that mutates. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what exactly it was, but they gave it to this group of gamers, basically. You know, they just put it on a website and sort of, you know, how the gaming culture is. It gets sent around, mm -hmm. and they solved it in like six months a bunch of gamers just sort of figure out what it was that the solution to this mathy probability e problem and it was because they were they and i think of the game i think of gamers like i think of genetic algorithms mm -hmm. right you throw it out there you get enough people messing around with it mm -hmm. and all of them are going to be thinking about it in slightly different ways mm -hmm. but sooner or later the answer will coalesce. Well, it's that it's the whole. It's basically that the in a way the power gamer uh, essence of hey, look at me, I'm smart, I figured out something. And also the what the optimization aspect of it. How can I beat this system? What is the hole? Yeah. How do I break it? How do I break this system? What's the hole? Mm -hmm. And I started thinking to myself. Uh, at, during the con this weekend, because I've been doing this research stuff with these people who are using genetic algorithms to solve engineering problems, and I started thinking to myself, we could use this software in game design, and it would save it would save a lot of heartbreak because there are a lot of people who really pour their heart and soul into building broken systems. Yep, and yeah, there's. Lots of evidence to support that theory. And I, I was just thinking to myself, it would be a true public service to the gaming community to just, you know, if we could figure out how to, how to, in, how to take a rule set mm -hmm. and formalize it so that these algorithms could work on it and find all the broken spots. Right. The which spots. is what we're doing right now with playtesting. But it takes a long time, yeah. and a lot of people's feelings get very badly hurt. <laughs> or, or a lot of people waste 
60 bucks because they buy a game that they think will be good and then after they played it three times realize oh there's a problem with this character and this ability so we have to house rule that you can't do that mm -hmm. and then there's another one that creeps in well you can't do that either and then another and it just it devolves quickly yeah and and I mean I'm I'm perfectly convinced that there's no such thing as a perfect system that can't be broken no in the in the same way that very much the same way that I think about there's, you know, I don't I don't know of too many environments on this planet that life has not invaded, mm -hmm. and so I'm very confident that we're going to find things on other planets when we get there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you, know, you could at least make it hard to break a system instead of very easy. Yeah, and that would be that would be. A, a good thing to do. Yeah, the world would be better. The, the gaming world, at least, would be better if there were fewer busted games. Right, because there's so many awesome concepts. We see this in morgues a lot, mm -hmm. uh, the online kind of gamings where people just say, okay, well, that that character class is useless. Yeah. And don't play that one. Well, in my experience, I've played probably too many of those, but if you want to have the power class of the future play that class. Ah, yes. Because in about a year, it will be overpowered. Oh, because they'll overcompensate Yeah. by trying to fix it and by, break it in a new way. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's... It's a constant shifting of what's broke, quote-unquote broken. And in most games, it's not... Maybe not most. In many games, it's not too bad. But there are... There are cycles and stages of how these games evolve, etc. And it's mostly the ones that have a relatively large player versus player element, mm -hmm. I think. Because there, you've, you've even more so, you've got that one-upsmanship exactly. aspect. The people who do player versus player are the people generally who are pretty serious about the game, that play a great deal. And so they're going to make the most noise if they're, they feel their character is underpowered. They'll gripe the most on the forums, etc. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who will um, play a great deal and like capture a uh, combat log saying, this is what happened to me, I surprised this guy and he still killed me, mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, and they're, they're the ones who complain the most, but they're also the ones probably who are maybe the most dedicated to that not happening to them so when they find when they find an advantage mm -hmm. they're definitely going to exploit it to oh, its fullest absolutely yeah absolutely and not even those you know those chinese guys who are playing for no, a living no 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 not that's not who i'm talking about these these are just our geek friends these are just our geek friends who obsess about things like that yeah you may have noticed tom using the word broken as a synonym for unbalanced. That's gamer speak for the presence of what a biologist would call an evolutionarily stable strategy. That's a series of moves or a set of if-then rules that wins most of the time. Gamers hate those. Um, what's the point of playing if you know ahead of time who will win? Right now, it's very difficult to design games that are balanced, where there are many winning strategies. 
At the same time, gamers hate games where luck is the only deciding factor, like Candyland. Gamers want to display their expertise in executing their chosen strategy, but they want choice in which strategy to use, maybe a little bit of randomness just for spice. There's been a fashion for several years now in what I call recombinant game design, where the initial conditions, the board, changes every game. Probably the best known example of this is Settlers of Catan, which we played a lot of when it first came out while I was in grad school. The board is made up of tiles, which are laid out in a randomly determined pattern each game. You get a different mix of plains, mountains, and forests each time, which changes the relative value of the resources you can extract from those lands. That determines the best strategy. So if we take that idea, that recombinant technology, as a starting point, we can answer the question Jared Diamond raised in another huge chunk tacular book called Guns, Germs, and Steel. That question being, why did the Christian West end up with all the technological loot? We could rearrange the resources just like in Settlers of Catan and run his thought experiments in simulation as actual experiments, pitting players of different cultural backgrounds against one another. Like uh, Beacon scientist Rich Lenski and others have invented the field of experimental evolution using miniature bacterial ecosystems, some bright, young, go-getting gamer geek could invent the field of experimental history. As John Hodgman would say, you're welcome. Tune back in two weeks from now, after Christmas, when we will fail to solve all the problems of America's school system in 15 minutes. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, with technical help from Lauren Branch and commissioned theme music, theoretically, by Tom Drury. Just imagine how cool that will be. Until then, here's my son Jack humming a cheery Christmas tune for free. I'm going to put my grasshopper here next to my soldier ant. I'm only doing this because it's near Christmas, kind of, sort of. I should repeat that he was in no way paid by the National Science Foundation, which supports VSI and me, through North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. Happy holidays, and thanks for listening. <laughs>